Check this out. We have a great offer for you today on the Humane Roundup. Gallant, featured on ABC's Shark Tank, is a biotechnology company that saves your pet's stem cells during their spay and neuter procedure. It allows you to treat your dog later in life for injuries and age-related illnesses. But why would I bank my pet stem cells? Did you know over 5 million pet owners have saved their puppy's stem cells for later years? Now you can do it for your animal as well. You might be thinking stem cells are futuristic, right? Well, actually over the past decade, thousands of pets have been successfully uh, treated with their stem cells, improving their lives for dogs and cats suffering from like allergic skin conditions, uh, osteoarthritis, dry eye, orthopedic injuries, and more. There's even evidence that stem cells can help your pets live healthier and longer. So don't miss out on this once in a lifetime opportunity for your pet. Save their young, healthy stem cells with Gallant's patented non-invasive procedure. With storage plans that start at only $45, you can give them access to potentially life-changing therapies. So check them out today. Go to Gallant.com. That's www.gallant.com and learn more about this company. Use our coupon code that we have today. It's HUMANE and save $100 off of your banking plan of your choice. Check them out. Gallant.com. Welcome to the Humane Roundup Podcast, where we share all the exciting stories about animal cruelty investigations, dangerous animals, and amazing rescues. Find out what goes on inside of animal shelters and all the current trends in the animal welfare industry. Now, here is your host, Daniel Edinger. And his extra special co-host, Ashley Bishop, who's been swimming in licenses it sounds like over the last few days what's going on dude oh my god so my city has decided to the last two years like hit licensing hard which i'm the only one for a population of forty thousand people um so they decided that they were gonna we were gonna send out like warning letters they're not actual warning letters but we made them look like our actual warning letters and give people 30 days to come into compliance. We sent out 1100 of them. Okay. And then like as people call in and say, "Hey, my animal's dead. Hey, this happened. Hey, I don't have it anymore. Hey, I already told you this." Mm. I now have to sit at my desk all day every day just listening to voicemails and responding to emails about people doing this because if we wrote the letters, we have to be the ones to update them. And it's just, it's a nightmare. It's a freaking nightmare. And it's a waste of my time. Licensing is, um, it's a, it's a tough sell. It's a tough sell for your staff and it's a tough sell for the community, right? Cause they're like, why do I need the license? What's the yep. purpose of it? Um, well, yeah. And, and I've got so many people. So we increased our licensing fees a couple of years ago that if you have an unlicensed animal, or I'm sorry, an unsterilized animal, it's $60 to license mm. them. Well, then after March 31st, it triples. So now I've got people calling me up and, oh, pandemic, oh, I can't pay that. Oh, I can't do that. Like, can you cut me a break? And I'm like, no, you've had since the beginning of December to do this. Like, why, why are you coming to me now? Well, it's only three weeks after the due date. I, I don't care. You had five months. Like, why is this an issue? It's yeah, it's a tough, 
it's just licensing in general. It's just a tough sell. It really is. And it's just like people don't want, they just don't want to do it. They don't want to pay the government more money. Right. They're like, this is ridiculous. Like, why do I need to do it? So I, I feel your pain. And then it sucks that it's taken away from your ability to go and enforce and, and be out in the field. Well, and, it, well, here's the thing though. I have to, on top of that, I still have to take my call. Mm. So like I had two cats I had to seize because I could see through the window that the one cat was visibly malnourished. And like, that's hard to do on a cat. It's hard to do on a cat, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I had to spend half my day doing that while the emails and phone calls and everything built up. And I've got lawyers yelling at me because, you know, they're some of the ones in violation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that makes it for a special treat, you know, getting a, a little break and getting onto the podcast this weekend. Yes. We have a cool guest that we'll introduce here shortly today. Just to remind folks, this is episode 79. Uh, we're here and happy to be, you know, given given everyone a, an opportunity to to listen to this show weekly and give their feedback. Remember to check us out on Facebook and Instagram as the Humane Roundup. There's also a private group on Facebook, the Humane Roundup group that you can join. Check out H.O. Bishop on Instagram and Facebook. And then I as well as, is it me or I as well? (laughs) (laughs) Animal Protection Officer Daniel. We deal with animals, not grammar. Both socials. (laughs) Both socials. You can find me there. And uh, there was something else I wanted to chat about today. I'm just really excited. You know, we we have some really good guests coming up. There's a new podcast I want to shout out called The Compassion Fatigue Couch uh, by Jennifer Blau. She'll be a guest with us in probably about a month. I think we have her scheduled. Uh, So if you have a chance to check her podcast out, again, The Compassion Fatigue Couch, uh, she's doing some really great stuff there. Uh, I know it's just getting up and running, but uh, it's really designated for our profession and some of the compassion fatigue that we deal with. So give that a listen when you get a chance. And uh, other than that, you know, was on vacation, got to see a different part of the country, visited one and a half animal shelters. <laughs> we went down to Wait, Santa what? Cruz. Yeah, we went down to Santa Cruz and visited uh, one of our guests that we had on a couple of weeks ago, Todd Stosi, uh, with Santa Cruz Animal Shelter or Animal Control. And uh, we spent probably like a half hour just, you know, BSing, looking through the shelter and he was showing us all of his stuff and good, good times, uh, brief, but cool. And then uh, San Francisco, I think they just renovated this new space. It's really pretty. It's a, like an old brick building. Uh, we got to see it from the outside. Uh, I tried breaking into the parking lot, <laughs> whatever. Fine. Statute of limitations is over. Well, probably not actually since it's not <laughs> been seven years, but no, we didn't, we didn't really break in the parking lot. We took a, took a photo of it and, it looked really neat. So yeah, there we are. Nice. Yeah. So I'm jealous. Yeah. We're, yeah. Got some travel coming up here in a couple of weeks to do some training out in Fort Leonard Wood with L-E-T-I. Oh, you're going to Fort La- Lost in the Woods. Yeah. I'll be there for <laughs> three the days. Yeah. I will be there for three days and uh, doing some great training with the DOD and uh, again, L-E-T-I who, uh, you know, has the curriculum and, we just kind of get in there and bust out some good stuff. So, did you see that Code Three is looking for trainers? 
I did. Uh, I did. So if anyone is interested with Code 3, please email Krista Curvers. Uh, she, I think her email was in the, the post that they sent out. I am not eligible for that at this time since I currently teach with LETI. So mm. uh, it's fine. You know, I, I don't want to over extend yeah. myself either. So your boss would get angry because you'd never be there anymore. And <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe in the future when I retire or something, I can <laughs> turn into a teacher full time. So we'll see. All right. How about we introduce our next guest? Sounds good to me. I think we should do that. Everyone, I would like to welcome David Hunt to the show. David, how are you doing, sir? Doing good. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate you and Ashley having me on this morning. We're really excited to have you. And I would love for you to just kind of give a brief intro. You currently work for the Department of Ohio Agriculture. Did I say that right? That's correct. Uh, the Ohio Department of Agriculture. Um, I've been uh, with the state of Ohio now for the past eight years. This is actually my retirement career. Uh, prior to this, I spent 32 years with the Franklin County Sheriff's Office in Columbus, uh, Ohio. And then uh, out of those 32 years, I spent 22 years in the uh, Undercover Vice Narcotics Unit. That's the narcotics side is kind of how I, I got into to dog fighting and animal fighting in general. And uh, But uh, one of the reasons I picked this uh, second career as my retirement job is that uh, the Department of Agriculture actually has uh, jurisdiction over animal fighting. So I'm very passionate about that. It was a way for me to continue my passion even after my uh, my uh, traditional law enforcement career. So uh, now- say, do you understand what retirement actually means? <laughs> like you're not supposed to work. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's part of the problem. I think uh, all of us in, in law enforcement uh, have type A personalities and uh, those within the narcotics world are type A on steroids. So it's hard for me to slow down. And uh, but again, I'm, I'm very passionate, especially regarding the animal fighting and uh, it's a great way to still stay active, make a difference, and work with uh, wonderful, wonderful people, uh, both from animal control, humane societies, and obviously law enforcement. That's a great background, man. And just looking at it from kind of top down, it seems like you're able to really give perspective based on, you know, the law enforcement background and then the animal welfare piece. Have you, and I, and I know we met at a training several years ago here in Colorado, but have you with the pandemic, have you been able to do any education or are you kind of, has that taken a back seat? It's a, it's certainly slowed down. I'm sure you've seen the same, same thing. So everything's kind of switched to an online platform. So, uh, there's, there's far fewer, which is, uh, a little bit depressing from my side. I've, I've lectured in 31 States. I obviously would love to hit all 50 at some point. So, uh, <laughs> kind of hit a speed bump there towards my goal, but, uh, yeah, still kind of plugging along doing the the online trainings. I can I just say, with all due respect to everyone, this just got posted in a NACA group. If people you know wanted to see online training moving forward, can we? I just want to be done with it. I'm tired of online training, man. The Zoom meetings, like my personal experience with it, and I've done a, a quite a few uh, teachings and or classes as a student. And I'm just ready for like in-person facial expressions, body language, like the whole, 
Yeah, thank yep. you. The room environment, networking. I am ready to get back to that, man. Total agreement. Except do you ever see employers ever wanting that again? Like think of how much money they're saving because they're not paying for travel and lodging. Such a great perspective and you're dead on. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it as it helps with budget 100% because you can deal with it that way. So maybe the future is like certain classes can be recorded and then a, like maybe agencies can pay a small fee to like purchase those recordings and watch them with the rest of the staff if, if certain staff can't go or something like that. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. So, well, David, I, I kind of want to jump in on some stuff. I, I think, you know, you, you set up the, your background and, and your perspective on, you know, uh, your, the industry in general and talking about some of the cases that you've dealt with. Uh, before we do that, though, before we maybe jump into some of uh, your past experiences, what does your day look like now uh, in, your, in your retirement role? Like, what do you kind of do day to day? Well, I've uh, I've been the chief of the enforcement division uh, since December of 17. So uh, obviously, it's far more of an administrative uh, role. But um, you know, the Department of Agriculture in Ohio, you know, we have nine different regulatory divisions, probably like most states, ranging from plant health, animal health, meat inspection. Uh, but I, I really, really enjoy the animal health side of it. Uh, in addition to animal fighting, uh, we also uh, regulate commercial dog breeders uh, here in Ohio. Uh, we also license and regulate uh, dangerous wild animals uh, as a result of an incident that occurred uh, back, I think it was 2012, where uh, an exotic animal owner released a bunch of tigers and lions oh, and bears, and uh, it made national news. And as a result of that incident, it gave rise to a new law here in Ohio uh, that if you own certain uh, exotic uh, animals that are classified as dangerous, uh, they have to be uh, regulated and licensed through my agency. So uh that that's by far that was one of the reasons i was hired also was to start that program off and i always used to joke when i when i first started that i went from chasing pedophiles prostitutes and pushers to lions tigers and bears <laughs> oh my oh my yeah. <laughs> i mean but aren't they kind of all one and the same when you i mean you've seen tiger king right wow. like, you know, actually, I have not, and that was by design because I I actually had an investigation uh, in, involving uh, uh, Tiger Joe there, so um, I uh, I intentionally didn't watch it because I I dealt with him far too much <laughs> the way it was that um, you know, I didn't want to do any more with that. Fair enough. That that could be a whole nother like episode. I would love to hear more about that, but. Um... Quick question about your regulation of dog selling and stuff. So here in Wisconsin, um, probably I think within the last 10 years or so, we passed actually maybe 15 to 20. God, am I old? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we passed our puppy mill bill, which mm -hmm. means anybody selling more than 25 dogs in a year, whether it be shelters, rescues, private breeders, um, they have to register with our Department of Ag. What does your law on that look like? Because I know there's a lot of states that don't have any kind of regulation on it yet. 
it's uh, it's somewhat comparable to yours and, and we actually have different licenses <clears throat> excuse me so uh the high volume dog breeders you know to where you you puppies a year you have to license that but also uh the brokers who purchase from the breeders and sell them to different pet stores uh we also uh as of about a year ago i believe it was we, we license uh pet stores sell uh dogs so you know, some pet stores don't deal in canines they they focus on you know maybe cats and and other animals but uh it's it's pretty diverse it's um just like with any other law, uh, I think it could definitely be a lot better, a lot tighter. Um, the, you know, our emphasis with the Ohio Department of Agriculture is compliance. So that's kind of a novel concept coming from a law enforcement background <laughs> that, hey, you break the law, we, we file a charge. And that's not necessarily the case in most of the issues that we deal with. So um, but we also, um, <clears throat> we have a very, the, the, the reason the law was passed, we have uh a, of a reputation across the country as being a puppy mill state, you know, uh, mm -hmm, definitely. Uh, the, the Amish community uh, produces a lot mm -hmm. of dogs, but we've, we've actually seen pretty decent compliance from within that community. Nice. Um, uh, it, it's, it's really the backyard breeders that give us most of the headaches. So uh, the, the, the people that, that breed dogs for a living, um, the vast majority, you know, they, they want to obey by the rules. They want to, and to have that endorsement from the state showing that they're doing things the right way. And uh, for the most part, you know, we, we don't really have a whole lot of issues on that front. It's just the backyard breeders uh, that really kind of come into play. So let's talk about that from the probably perspective of a lot of our listeners as officers, right? <clears throat> so currently in my location, we don't have specific to our ordinance, we don't have anything that will stop the sale of puppies, right? Now, some of our neighboring jurisdictions do, and our state also has regulations, maybe similar to what you do there in Ohio. So if I'm an officer in Ohio, like, I, I guess my question for you is, are officers, well, Ohio is a little different because you have animal control and then you have humane officers and you also have dog wardens. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And I don't even... I know. I don't even want to break that down yet because it probably take us half the show. But are you getting? Are complaints coming in that way? Are are they are they coming in from the general public? Is it a combined thing? How does that look? Well, yeah, we we get it from across the spectrum. Um, I'm very fortunate because of my my past career. Uh, I traveled all over the state doing animal fighting investigations. So I know a very, very large percentage of, of ACOs, humane agents, dog wardens. Uh, I frequently lecture to their various associations. So we keep a very active dialogue uh, with all three of those groups. Uh, so, um, and, the, and the nice thing there is the fact that they've got Dave Hunt's direct line. They don't have to go through the Great. switchboard. If they have an issue, they, they either email me or call me directly and, uh, that's one of the benefits of being the boss. I can, uh, <laughs> I can, uh, you know, put things to the front burner if need be. And uh, I, I truly, truly appreciate it. Matter of fact, if you don't mind, just take a quick second that um, I always advocate the traditional law enforcement about building closer relationships with ACOs and, and humane agents. Um, I'd been a police officer for 20 years uh, and had very limited interaction, but obviously once I, I got into dog fighting, that that per, 
quickly increase, but I quickly That's realized that, yeah, I realized yeah. that you go ahead. I just wanted to really quick before you go further, most law enforcement's interaction with our profession and correct me here if I'm wrong is, Hey, I'm arresting somebody. They got a dog. I need to pick. Yep. 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 You hit it right on the head. And, um, and, and that's one of the things that once I, I started to get to know, especially my animal control officers, uh, I worked with them extremely closely, but uh, the, the the benefits of that relationship went far and beyond animal issues that, I mean, I'm speaking to the choir with you two. I mean, I'm, you go to the same houses that we go into, uh, and maybe the guy may not be as threatened by an animal control officer as he would a police officer. So he's not worried about leaving the, the crack cocaine on the coffee table or uh, the AR-15 propped up in the corner. So I, I've gotten tons of search warrants uh, based upon information from ACOs and humane agents that I never would have gotten them in the past. So uh, just a, a huge, huge shout out to uh, to all my animal control officer friends and humane agents that uh, do a spectacular job every day. Again, they visit the same doors that police officers do. And uh, I always, always encourage law enforcement to forge stronger relationships with those entities. Couldn't agree more, man. And I really appreciate that perspective. Honestly, that, that mm -hmm. means a lot to us and I'm sure our listeners as well. Yeah, just a uh, matter of fact, uh, one of the most unique cases I got was an animal control officer that was inside a residence uh, checking on a license. And the uh, person went upstairs to get the license. And while the ACO was waiting, they happened to glance in the uh, the kitchen and saw a printing press on the table with sheets of $20 bills. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, ended up getting a search warrant for counterfeiting and got Secret Service involved, and uh, all to, all because of a simple observation. And that person knew who to call, and uh, uh, just just and that's just one of many, many, many stories. But just really kind of articulates the uh, the benefit of forging those relationships. And no, no pun intended with forging there. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But you bring up such a valid and great perspective. Like when you're out on scene, it's not just about the animal, right? Like for us as officers, like have a wide view. And and if there are things that you can report to your law enforcement, um, report it if it's going to make a difference, right? Like or social you... services. Oh, absolutely. Like absolutely. the number. There's been a number of times where I have gotten in when social services can't. So. I go in and luckily I have access to be able to wear a body cam. That's not, a, I'm using my phone as body cam, but whatever. And I can then turn that video over to social services or an officer and be like, Hey, <laughs> you know, certainly it goes beyond that too. Uh, zone zoning uh, authorities, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, board of health. I mean, we actually had an ad hoc task force, uh, prior to my retirement that accompanied or in, in yeah, it, it basically uh, incorporated all those different uh, groups that uh, the fire marshal's office, you know, that you go inside a residence and there's exposed wiring. And uh, so there's there's all sorts of opportunities to, uh, to that benefit everyone involved. So, you know, forging those, uh, those partnerships is really crucial, I think. Absolutely. Do you want to jump into some of the fighting stuff? I, I really, I want to give our listeners enough time and, and I really wanted to kind of get some perspective on that since sure. that is, that is one of your expertise. Uh, can you start just from 
let's let's start with dogfighters. Can you just kind of break down briefly like the players and, and how that there there's kind of different tiers, if you will, with dogfighting? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, you know, I'll preface with the fact that I never in a million years envisioned ending up where I am today. Uh, I loved working in narcotics cases. Uh, and just like with the Michael Vick case, I was on the scene of a narcotics search warrant. I saw a lot of things that just kind of stuck out to me. But like most traditional law enforcement, I never had any training on it. So uh, I kind of had to self-educate. But you know, I, I quickly, it, it really almost became a full-time job because no one had ever addressed it before. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. So, uh, but you you have the street level uh, versions, which typically are, are young uh, gang members. Um, they may they may match a couple dogs on a spur of the moment. One guy's walking down the street with his dog, the other with his, they stop and they fight for $20 or, or whatever the case. Uh, and, and then there's the hobbyist who's uh, obviously a step up from that. They, they, most of them aspire to be professionals, uh, but they lack maybe the uh, financial means to, to make that jump, but they're very into the breeding, the bloodlines and pedigrees rather. Um, there's tends to be a, a very heavy nexus to narcotics trafficking because uh, again, it can be a very expensive endeavor. So if you have disposable income from, selling drugs, that certainly helps a lot. So I'd say probably a good 80 to 90% of the dogfighters that I've ever dealt with have been drug trafficking. Uh, and then lastly, there's the professionals, which are your your Michael Vicks and that uh, very elite level, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. The HSUS estimated that uh, uh, dogfighting was a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced that's an accurate uh, amount for it. And it, it, that includes, I mean, you know, Michael Vick is the, let's say, the outlier where it's like a professional, uh, highly noted personality. But there's no surprise where there's doctors and possible attorneys. I mean, these these people come in all shapes and, sh and sizes, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, it uh, it doesn't really know any socioeconomic barrier. Uh, uh, it crosses all of them. And some of them may not be hands-on, you know, just like with Vic, uh, he was really more the money man. I mean, he obviously participated a little bit, but uh, you do have those people because of the amount of money that's generated their financial backers. And yes, there's doctors, lawyers, even police officers. So mm. uh, I actually dealt with a, a female uh, dog fighter here in Ohio Ooh. who was a registered vet tech. Mm. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but that was... Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was actually, uh, it was actually a, a brilliant move on her part. Uh, she would charge $1,000 per dog to rehab dogs after a fight. Mm. Sure. Um, so she would pilfer any supplies that she would need from her employer. And uh, she lived out in the country, had a pretty good sized property. So after a match, she would take the dog back, uh, treat it, you know, give it, you know, veterinary care. And then once it was all set to go, she would return it back and get $1,000 for that. Wow, that's scarily brilliant. Yeah. I mean, yes, like... yeah, it's, from a business model, yes, it's brilliant, yeah. But how can you justify putting the dogs through that and still claim to be, I don't know, I don't get it. I, don't, I just, I don't get it. Mm. You'll go crazy trying to figure that out. <laughs> there, There is that mentality that the dogs want to do it, right? 
Yes, um, absolutely. It, and I, I, I don't want to get off base. I'm, I'm going to bring up something about cockfighting here in a little bit, but uh, in the in the dogfighting world, I guess as we continue to move forward, we've seen progressive laws come into play. So here in Colorado, it's a felony to even be a spectator at an animal fighting event. Is that the same there in Ohio? Yeah, uh, it is. And matter of fact, we probably have one of the best uh, dogfighting statutes in the country. Uh, we we actually hit a dogfight in progress one, one night and we actually arrested 40 spectators. Um, again, all they were doing was standing there watching, but they were charged with felonies. And like a lot of uh, high level events, this one was videotaped. So we actually had each and every individual on video uh, watching it. So out of uh, out of 40 arrests, we had 39 convictions. Uh, one guy took it to trial and one only because of the fact that he was from Buffalo, New York, and was told he was just going to a party down in, in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, for whatever reason, the jury, he was a very good college student, never any trouble. And uh, he was acquitted. But, you know, I'll take 39 out of 40 convictions every day of the week. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So are there like, as we kind of pull back from the general overview as a field officer, it's, I would imagine it's difficult to get, like, to just get a complaint, this person's fighting a dog, going to a house, and then moving forward without some sort of intel or, or some something other than just like, hey, I think this person's fighting a dog because they have a pit bull. My question, I guess it's a multi-part, multi-part question is, you kind of need like a CI or somebody to really turn or, or tell you like, hey, there's an event happening here at this date and time. Like what, what are the things that officers can look for on a small scale? And then how do they get that into a larger level um, investigation, I guess is my question. Uh, great questions. Uh, and I get those all the time. And um, one thing I always encourage that it, it, it's really it's the nature of the beast, whether you're in humane enforcement or traditional law enforcement. It's the mindset. You get a dispatch, you react, you clear it, you move on to the next one. Um, unfortunately, with dogfighting, it, it's it's almost never going to be the, the, the case unless it's street level fighting that you're going to catch a fight in progress. In fact, that's one of my pet peeves that, you know, I lecture to a lot of sheriffs and chiefs and Someone inevitably always says, you know, I'd love to do a dogfighting case, but, you know, we, we got to catch them in the act. And every time I hear that, I want to shove a pencil in my eye to kind of take my mind off of it. And I, I always <laughs> respond back that, you know what, I, 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 I worked quite a few homicide investigations during my career. And not once did I ever actually catch someone in the act of killing someone. <laughs> uh, and, and, and same thing with child molestation and, and rape. And, and the list goes on and on. You know, the very nature of of investigations is reactive you know crime happens we investigate it so dogfighting is really no different that you just got to be very very patient you got to amass uh the information eventually the little pieces of the puzzle all come together to where you get enough to get a search warrant and once you execute that normally there's more than enough evidence from a search warrant to to secure a conviction so can we Take a second, and you know there's a, a lot of talk. You you pick up a, a stray dog, whatever breed it is, and it's got a little bit of scarring 
like on the face or something and immediately mm-hmm. everybody picks it up oh it was a bait dog it was a bait dog you know that 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 was you know used in fighting can we talk about that for a second like is that a legitimate thing where dogs are just getting picked up and then let go because as bait dogs well um no no pun intended but that's one of those things where the tail wags the dog um <laughs> you know do bait dogs exist absolutely uh but they're typically generated from within the actual breeding that the, the fighter does. So out of a, a litter of, you know, let's say five puppies, one of them just isn't aggressive at all. Uh, it's, you know, but it's still a pit bull. And so it's very rare that they'll go out and steal a, you know, cockapoo or, or whatever, you know, kind of mm-hmm. a neighbor's dog. Uh, Golden well, retriever. To... Exactly. Uh, so, you know, it's been my experience. I've been doing dog fighting since 2002. So um, I've only had just a couple of cases where that involved bait dogs. And again, those cases were self-generated by the fighter himself through breeding. So yeah, I, I, I don't know how that gained such momentum, you know, within urban myth and so on, but yeah, it, it's a bad thing for all of us to deal mm-hmm. with. It's honestly one of my biggest pet peeves. I, I've gone to another training with a gentleman, and I can't think of what his name is right now. Um, but he he was five years undercover into mm-hmm. a, a fighting ring, and he said never did they bring in other dogs. Like they want to know the health status of the animal, they want to know the background of the animal. They're not going to just let them go to potentially get caught, you know. Exactly. And so that's just one of my biggest pet peeves because I've had it happen around here where, oh, this dog got dumped and it's got all scarred up. And and then, of course, the media grabs that attention and just it blows up. Yep. Well, kind of going back to what you talked about a little bit ago on securing a, a search warrant, I've successfully had a few cases with cockfighting without actual cockfighting. Uh, you exactly. cannot you cannot possess a bird intended to be used in a fight here in the state. Uh, you cannot breed birds intended to use in a fight in the state. You cannot transport, etc. Uh, we were able to prove that based on other supporting evidence that was around there. And so as we talk about dogfighting, uh, so it's a fine line because there is dog is it dog weight pulling or dog weight training uh, that people do now it's a it's kind of a thing where like they can pull 2500 pounds or more and they're you know they're using some of the same equipment like treadmills and and things like that to get the there's, dog there's the weight pulling but then there's also one i'm seeing around here is where they hang something from a tree and the dog has to like run up and and grab on and hold on to like this tug rope too which are similar things to dog fighting too yeah but if you take a situation and david i'd love your feedback here uh that you're on scene maybe you're you get a call for a welfare check uh dogs are tied out no food water shelter and you see that like you see that common you know they're all on chains they may have barrels that they use as a as a kind of break from the wind or you know shelter if you will but in the yard you see maybe like a a treadmill uh, 
a, what they call a rape stand. Uh, it, it, it's a, is it called a Jenny mill or a Jenny pole? Yeah, uh, a Jenny or a cat mill. Cat mill and run around and start, like all those things, um, though you don't have acting, you're going to want to ask questions to the individual why they have that information take photos of the, all that all that evidence look at your animals are there are there scarring uh things like that because all that circumstantial stuff could lead you to a warrant to find more information whether it's on their on their electronics things like that what are, what are your thoughts there you're you're spot on daniel uh all of that are i, I always equate it to a jigsaw puzzle those are all individual pieces of the puzzle uh, and as you put all those together, you know, it, it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck. It's probably a duck. So, uh, but typically if you have all of the, or at least some of the paraphernalia and obviously some of the, uh, mentioned the, uh, the toe chains and all of that, um, typically, uh, the defining thing is, is scarring. You know, if there's mm -hmm. heavy amounts of scarring around the, the, the front part of the dog, you know, the face, neck, ears, so on and so forth. Uh, that's typically the tipping point that that's going to be enough to give you your probable cause piece together with all the other uh, pieces of information. Uh, something as simple as licensing. You know, a lot of fighters don't like to license their dogs for, for fear of detection. So that damn licensing is going to bite me in the ass. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, rabies vaccinations. Um one of the things that I've all that I've used in the past that you know we'll we'll be on the scene of a suspected you know operation and I'll I'll ask the guy hey you've got twenty pit bulls chained up here you know, what are you doing with oh well I'm breeding them I'm selling them uh, so that's when I get zoning involved you know they're running a business in a neighborhood uh, selling dogs well do you have a zoning license are you permitted for that you know um, bring in the board of health you know there's a lot of feces and urine on the property so. It's just going that extra step or two to get as much information. And, and again, Daniel, you hit it right on the head. You're typically going to get everything evidence-wise that you need from the search warrant. So your goal is just to merely get inside the door. If you get inside the door, you're you're normally going to hit the jackpot. What is? Do you know the recidivism with dogfighters after they've been conv convicted? You know, I don't have a, a a hard stat on that, but you know, anecdotally, I, I can't tell you that it that it is very high. I've got uh, several individuals who I've I've repeated uh, repeatedly arrested over the years, and uh, again, you, you try to delve into the psyche of some of these people. It's hard for for people like us to understand, but um, they they look at no different than I'm a huge hockey fan, you know. Um, I'm, I'm never going to stop watching hockey and loving hockey. And, and that's the way they are. And even though they, they profess to quote unquote, love their dogs, they clearly treat them otherwise. But, um, yeah, I, I have quite a few that, uh, are re repeat offenders. Can I just really quick ask what your favorite hockey team is then? I'm curious living in Ohio. Well, uh, obviously, living in Columbus, it, it has to be the Columbus Blue Jackets. But uh, prior to this getting a franchise, I was a huge Chicago Blackhawks fan. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Though we digress, uh, Mark andre Fleury, I'm a big Penguins fan, and he uh, just moved into third all-time or tied for third all-time in wins. 
as a I saw that. Yeah. Awesome stuff. All right. Back to Play our regularly blah, scheduled. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> back to our regularly <laughs> scheduled program here on the Humane Roundup. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, this stuff is fascinating. And I, I, I just want the listeners to be able to, to, you know, get a good picture of it. I think a lot of officers, when they start out, you know, dogfighting is such a, it's almost like that pinnacle point in your career where you can say like, I've investigated one of these cases or I've had prosecution in one of these cases. And it's just, I, I want people to know it takes time and sometimes it takes the right informant or the right call um, to get out there. But on top of that, you as the officer, you definitely have to um, put in your work. You have to be able to, to focus and concentrate. And if you see something, like David was saying, it's part of the puzzle. Just because you're not seeing an active fight doesn't mean you can't document it and put it put it together and possibly you know get more evidence from that. Yeah, that's uh, that's right on point. Um, I, I've done uh, a little over eighty dogfighting search warrants in my career, and I'll say sixty of those uh, were due just a simple. Uh, periodic surveillance, you know, uh, open source record checking, uh, things like that. Because once you get the search warrant, that gets you in the door and that's where you get the evidence. So it's just really being um, patient, you know, with it and and being persistent. So if you can do those two things uh, more often than not, uh, you're, you're going to be successful. How long would you say that your longest investigation was like when you say be patient how are we talking weeks months a year or more oh definitely months uh matter of fact uh one of my my current younger officers that works for me he's he's got a case and uh he's had it since december and he's a young guy you know he wants to go out there and fight crime suppress evil and drink coffee and um, <laughs> donuts <laughs> and donuts and um getting a little bit frustrated, but I, I keep telling them, you just gotta just be patient, you know, and sure enough, every couple of weeks, a little, another no, little nugget will come in. And finally, uh, just this past week, coincidentally, uh, I think we're real close to getting a search warrant on this. And again, it's been going on, you know, since, uh, before December. So it, but you know, I've, I've worked cases where, um, uh, one that comes to mind, I actually, I spent two years on it. Now, again, I didn't work it every single day. I didn't actually work it every single month, but you know, I kept a running file open. I kept a running affidavit. That way, once you know, I did get that missing piece, I was ready to go. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one of the things I strongly advocate. If you suspect something, start an affidavit. Start that diary of your investigation. That way, when it does come to fruition, you're ready to go. You don't have to go back through your notes from the past year, two years, uh, it's all right there for you and, and you're all set to go. And we know our district attorneys or our attorneys in general love timelines. And so having that timeline already ready is such a time saver because you're already going to be busy enough documenting all the animals then to go back and try to remember all that stuff. I it, That's one of my biggest, uh, like my biggest issues in life in general is patience. And so <laughs> I, when I get Not these you calls, ever. <laughs> When I get these calls, I just, I'm like, let's go. Let's just fucking go. Um, but you have to remember that the, the truth of the matter is if you don't blow it on your end, they're not going to stop. Like you have as much time yeah. as you need. Don't mess it up on your end. 
be patient, do whatever you need to do uh, from, from that standpoint and take your time. You're not going to stop and likely, likely you're going to gather more evidence than you would if you went in the first, you know, just right off the bat because you're so eager to do it. So if anyone can learn anything from my impatience, that's it. Oh, just that, that was an excellent point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what yeah. I was going to say too is, you know, I, I can also understand from that mentality of, you know, let's go, let's, we got to save these animals. And as much as it sucks to say, you, you might have to sacrifice a few to be able to help the greater good in that kind of situation. Because if, if you get, okay, you get one person that day, but if you can build your case, how many more people are... The case um, that the ASPCA had, they were able to build their case. And when they actually went in to do their search warrant, it went from 150 roosters to 800 and they had five different owners. So, you know, you got to be able to build that case and you can do so much more with it. And that's kind of hard for new people to understand. David, do you see a lot of cockfighting in Ohio as well? We probably have more cockfighting than dogfighting only because, uh, as I mentioned, we have probably one of the best dogfighting statutes in the country, but conversely, we have probably one of the worst cockfighting ones. So um, I I often joke that if you live in the southern half of the state of Ohio, you're almost obligated to own so many game fowl. Uh, <laughs> it, it just, uh, you go down into southern Ohio and, and you'll see, you know, 50, 100, 200 roosters, you know, tethered out to the barrel. So uh, unfortunately, it's still a misdemeanor in our state, unless you actually do catch them in the act of fighting, uh, then it is a felony. Hmm. So uh, a lot of common denominators between the two activities, both dogfighting and cockfighting. Um, I also was, I don't know if you call it fortunate, but uh, a couple of years ago, I actually did, I believe it's Ohio's first and only bear baiting uh investigation which is also under the animal fighting statute uh the party involved actually had a permit with us to own a bear uh but he was using the bear to uh to train dogs and actually they would release the dogs on the bear and uh so even though it's kind of characterized as a uh, like a sporting type endeavor um under the statute it reads as animal fighting you're pitting one animal against another so Mm -hmm. um so it's um i i'm kind of fortunate that i've hit the trifecta and animal fighting cases within my state well it's uh, honestly it's uh, amazing to hear all this stuff and i'm sure our listeners probably have tons of questions and for us to to be able to to continue this dialogue maybe on another episode down the road we'd love to have you back and uh we we really didn't get a chance to to dive into cockfighting i think some of the there's a lot of parallels between dogfighting and cockfighting. Uh, and so the same things kind of apply that you can build your case, uh, as you talked about with, you know, talking about scarring on dogs, uh, you know, having groomed roosters with pot. If you look closely enough, you can see old wounds uh, under some of the feathers and things like that. Uh, and then just other things as well, whether it's, um, certain supplements that are laying around um, that just aren't normal to, to, you know, to, to fowl or, 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 you know, chickens in that, in that sense. Um, it, are there any other things that you would kind of 
recommend or, or say that may stick out when you're looking at a, a rooster fighting investigation? Yeah, by far the uh, the two most common and easiest are uh, number one, the number of roosters. If, if you've got 50 roosters in one hen, it's clearly not an egg producing operation. <laughs> uh, and then secondly, uh, it's extremely commonplace. Uh, you kind of alluded to it. They'll remove the combs and wattles uh, from the birds early on because they're, they're very vascular uh, appendages on the bird. So if they get nicked during a fight, they, they bleed profusely. So um, it's very, very, very common to remove both the combs and wattles uh, from a fighting bird early on. And can we just talk briefly about farm, uh, I think, farm mechanics? It's not uncommon on a farm to have roosters living with other roosters kind of openly, right? right. Uh, the issue is when you go out on one of these calls and somebody has 25 roosters all individually housed, there's a reason for that. Right. Yeah. The, uh, fighting birds are going to be tethered outside of reach of each other. Um, uh, the bird's natural spurs are also typically removed because they'll you know, eventually put on a... Uh, either a gaff or a knife on there to replace it. So yeah, you, you hit it right on the point. And that's always, you know, I've testified at our state house repeatedly on cockfighting, a proposed cockfighting legislation. And, and we're also a very big poultry state uh, over in the Western part. You know, we, uh, we legitimately produce a lot of poultry, you know, uh, you know, from, from farm to table. So you know, a lot of the legislators are reluctant to increase the penalties thinking that, well, okay, uh, uh, the so-and-so sheriff's office may go raid Gerber Poultry, one of the largest, you know, production companies in the world. But it, it, again, I always, you know, point out the fact that unless you've got knives or gaffs, you got nothing to worry about. So, um, yeah, you, you do bring up a good point in that regard. And then you also, uh, just a quick side note to that, you know, here in Ohio, and I'm sure most states, uh, we also have livestock care standards, um, which is traditionally more for the larger, you know, owls, horses, and so on, but uh, pigs, um, but it also incorporates poultry as part of that as well. So that's just another angle that if you're looking at a cockfighting operation, you might get with your State Department of Agriculture. Um, they, most of them have veterinarians that are well-versed in livestock care standards, and they're going to they're gonna know the difference between a fighting operation and a legitimate, you know, uh, a production facility. Definitely. Absolutely. Ashley, what you got? Anything else? So many questions and not enough time. That's <laughs> true. I, I mean, I feel like we could, we could take a super deep dive into fighting and I think it's something that our listeners would really enjoy. So like you said, you know, um, getting David back on here and, and doing that one day, maybe seeing if he can talk about a specific case and stuff. Sure, Definitely. Oh, we got the technical issues worked out. Be, be <laughs> my pleasure. David, thank you for your patience with all that. Uh, I know it was frustrating on my end. Uh, and so I can't imagine uh, your perspective from your end as well. And just being patient and 
coming back uh, after last week trying to get it figured out. We really do appreciate that. Well, just as we uh, we articulated earlier, being patient and being <laughs> persistent, and and we we saw successful results. <laughs> so I, I I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna ask you this question. I, I've read I, I haven't read the whole book, but I read a chapter about cockfighting. This book by Hal Herzog called some we love, some we hate, and some we eat. Mm -hmm. And in this book, um, he quotes a, a, an AP writer uh, or talks about an AP writer's perspective on cockfighting. And this, this chapter was specific to cockfighting, which was fascinating. Um, but he, I'm going to just read it here and, and kind of get your and Ashley's take on this. So uh, basically, it's talking about cockfighting and then you see the same thing in thoroughbred racing according to an investigation by jeffrey mcmurray of the associated press more than three horses per day died at racetracks in the united states in 2007 over 5,000 horses between 2003 and 2008 yet a gallop poll taken after the death of eight bells the horse uh, who collapsed during the 2008 Kentucky Derby and had to be immediately euthanized found that most Americans oppose any bans on thoroughbred racing. Like cockfighting, horse racing represents a confluence of gambling and suffering, but unlike cockfighting, thoroughbreds are a pastime of the rich. Yep. I, uh, <laughs> I, I have to agree with that. Uh, I, I don't think uh, either one's obviously mutually exclusive, but there really should be a, a far more aggressive stance in, in addressing uh, commercial horse racing. Um, we, we have those tracks here in Ohio as well. And, uh, but just like there's a huge uh, perspective between dogfighting and cockfighting. Everyone loves dogs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I once had a, a detective that worked for me that on a cockfighting case, he's like, hey, you know, tonight's losers, tomorrow's quesadilla. You know, that that was I mean, it was said in jest, but that's really the mentality. People don't look at, you know, game foul the way they look at dogs or companion. Absolutely. So and I think that hits it right on the head in terms of, you know, race horsing is, is a very expensive uh, business. It generates a ton of revenue, uh, not only for the business, but also uh, state state government. Uh, so it, it should be more aggressively looked at. But um Changing uh, mindsets can often be very, very difficult. Absolutely. And I know we don't have time or want to really even go down that rabbit hole. I just thought it was such a unique perspective because people don't look at it as a, as a cruel sport in that aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, they, see, they see it as the celebration of amazing creatures, but it can be very similar, uh, like the, what they call the, the keep process, right? Yes. Uh, getting, a, getting a horse ready to go for a race is similar to either getting a dog ready to fight or a cock ready to fight. So uh, just the parallels between it is, is something that before I read that chapter, I, I had no idea. Uh, nor did I until you just brought it up. So I'm glad you did. That'll uh, be something I can look into. Cool. Well, David, we greatly appreciate your time, man. Uh, we, we definitely like to have you come back here in the future and uh, just can't thank you enough for your expertise and everything you've done for animals in your career and people as well. So, uh, thank you for yes, that. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, also, again, my thanks to all the uh, animal control officers and humane agents. Uh, you guys are my heroes. Um, uh, the work that you do is phenomenal. Uh, you speak for those who don't have a voice. Uh, and, and you truly do make a difference every single day. 
Well, thank you for saying that. I know we here on the Humane Roundup appreciate that. I know our, our listeners. And as always, Ashley, you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> we keep it humane, humane. humane. <laughs> on the Humane Roundup podcast. Thank you.